Come on, church. Why don't we give Jesus a big hand this morning? Come on. Jesus is the King of kings. Jesus is the Lord of lords, and He alone deserves all the honor, all the glory, and all the praise. Hallelujah. Billy Graham was one of the greatest evangelists that the world had ever known. But early on in his preaching career, there was a distinct moment that turned and empowered his ministry. It happened when Billy Graham was invited to preach for two nights in Wales. And in the two days that he was there, in the daytime, he met with another preacher by the name of Stephen Alford to pray for the anointing of the Holy Spirit. On the first day, they prayed, and nothing much happened. Billy Graham preached the message on the first night, and his sermon was described as ordinary, and the response was sparse. But on the second day, as they were praying, something happened to Billy Graham. And I want to read to you the account of Stephen Alford, the only other man who was in that room at that time, as to what happened to Billy Graham. It was about mid-afternoon on the second day that Billy began pouring his heart in the prayer of total dedication to the Lord. All heaven broke loose in that dreary little room. Billy exclaimed, my heart is so flooded with the Holy Spirit. He alternately wept and laughed, and Billy began walking back and forth across the room saying, I have it, I'm filled, I'm filled. This is the turning point of my life. This will revolutionize my ministry. That night, Billy was to speak at the large Baptist church nearby. When he rose to preach, he was a man absolutely anointed. Billy's audience seemed to sense it. They came forward to pray even before the invitation was given. And later when it was given, the listeners jammed the aisles. There was chaos. Practically the entire audience came rushing forward. Stephen Alford drove back to his parents' house that night, deeply moved by Billy's new authority and strength. When I came in the door, he said later, my father looked at my face and asked, what on earth has happened? I sat down at the kitchen table and said, Dad, something has happened to Billy Graham. The world is going to hear from this man. He is going to make his mark in history, and he did. There is an anointing that empowers a Christian to do God's work. This anointing is unfakeable, is unmistakable, and is irreplaceable. You cannot substitute it with good looks or charisma or eloquence or man's intelligence. It is a supernatural gift from God to the Christian. And this morning, I want to talk to you about how to catch the anointing for ourselves. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 2, and our passage this morning is verse 1 to verse 15. And it came to pass, when the Lord was about to take Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Then Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he says, Yes, I know. Keep silent. Then Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here please, for the Lord has sent me on to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho came to Elisha and said to him, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And so he answered, yes, I know, keep silent. Then Elijah said to him, stay here please, for the Lord has sent me on to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. 
And 50 men of the sons of prophets went and stood facing them at the distance, while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Now Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up, and struck the water, and it was divided this way and that, so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. And so it was, when they had crossed over, that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask, what may I do for you before I am taken away from you? Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. So he said, You have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. Then it happened as they continued on and talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and his horsemen. And so he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into two pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he had also struck the water, it was divided this way and that, and Elijah crossed over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were from Jericho saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elijah, and they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Just join me as I open in prayer. Lord, sovereign Lord, right now we ask that you will lift yourself up and you will be glorified in this place. This morning, Lord, come with rain and fire. Fill us, touch us, and be Lord of this place. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage is a beautiful passage of Elisha chasing the anointing for himself, but it's also a roadmap for us as Christians on how we too can chase the anointing. The first thing I want to bring your attention to in this passage are the four places that Elijah brought Elisha. Before Elisha could even get to the place of the anointing, he had to travel through four different places. In the same way for us as Christians, before we can get to the place of anointing, there are four milestones in our walk with God that we will pass through. The first place that Elijah brought Elisha to is the place known as Gilgal. What does Gilgal represent in the Bible? Joshua 5 verse 9, Then the Lord said to Joshua, this day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore, the name of this place is called Gilgal to this day. Gilgal is the place where we know that our sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus. It is the point of salvation and all Christian experience begins at Gilgal. Gilgal is a beautiful place. It is the best place to be. And God said, you can stay here if you want. The sum of your Christian experience can be salvation if that's what you want. And even that is beautiful. But Gilgal is only the beginning and God has so much more for us. And those who are hungry will say, Lord, I will not leave you and we will go further into the things of God. The second place that Elijah brought Elisha to was Bethel. Bethel literally means house of God. And in today's context, Bethel represents the church. Psalm 68 verse 6 says that God sets the lonely in families. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 warns us that your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Early on in our Christian experience, we are like newborn babes and we are vulnerable. In order to protect us from the devil who is like a roaring lion looking to devour our faith, God will often put the Christian in a church 
The church is a beautiful place to be in. In the church, we find protection. In the church, we find good teaching. In the church, we find fellowship, love. We find a spiritual family. And God says to us, if you want, you can stay here. The sum of your Christian experience can be salvation and belonging to a church. Even that is beautiful. But those of us who are hungry will say, God, I will not leave you and I will go further into the things of God. The third place that Elijah brings Elisha to is Jericho. Jericho was this city with high and impenetrable walls. But God, in an act of a miracle, brought the walls crumbling down and gave His people a supernatural victory. Jericho is a place of supernatural victories and testimonies. Many times in our Christian lives, when we reach a particularly dark and difficult spot in our life, we become extra pious. We pray and we plead to God for mercy, and in His mercy, He will give us a victory, a deliverance, and we have a testimony. Sometimes in the act of ministry, when we know we have to go on a mission trip, we will fast and we will pray and we will be pious for months. And then when we go for the mission trip, in His act of mercy, God will give us the victory that we need and we have a testimony. I used to be in my own place of Jericho and I used to think that my walk with God was okay because I had a few testimonies and I thought that God was using me. But then one day, I read the biography of Smith Wigglesworth, the great man of God. And that book shook me upside down. That book, when I saw it, I wept because I saw through the life of Smith Wigglesworth a man who was so filled with God, who was so intimate with God, that it just made my experience with God look superficial and shallow. In my mind, I was in a dark room and in His mercy, God would hand me a torch with a flame and I would use it for a ministry or two and then it would disappear. And then I would be in the dark again. But over there, I saw a whole group of people, Smith Wigglesworth, Catherine Coleman, Billy Graham, Reinhard Bonkies, and they were on fire for God. They didn't need a torch or two because they were living torches. In my mind, I saw them literally on fire for God every moment, every day of the year for the Lord. Their whole lives was burning for God. And I said, God, I want to be like that. And I became extremely hungry for the Lord. Maybe we have a testimony from God. Maybe we have seen God move in our midst. But church, don't be, com don't be too comfortable. Don't stop there. Because just over Jericho, there is a great anointing waiting for us. The fourth place that Elijah brought Elisha to was the Jordan River. The Jordan River represents a test of faith for God's people to cross into the unknown with Him. First time that God's people came across the Jordan River was when they were in the desert and they had to cross the Jordan River to enter the Promised Land. And God encouraged them. He says, the land I'm bringing you into, the Promised Land is a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a beautiful place but they didn't have the faith to cross over. And so the entire generation under Moses lived and died in the desert. But the next generation under Joshua had the faith to cross the Jordan River into the Promised Land, and there 
every single one of them who crossed into the promised land saw with his own eyes the might of God. They had adventures, they had stories, they had testimonies of their own to share. Jordan is a test of faith to cross into the unknown, to desire an anointing that we have not seen. Over here, I want to show you there was a third group of people. They were known as the sons of prophets. Sons of prophets are not biological sons of prophets. Sons of prophets is the name of the prophetic guild. Every major town and city had a guild where all the prophets would gather, and that guild was called the sons of prophets. To be a member of the sons of prophets, every member had to be a prophet in his own right. So here the 50 sons of prophets who followed them were prophets in their own right. And this is where it becomes very sad because 50 sons of prophets were at Bethel and Jericho and they even followed Elijah as far as the Jordan River, but none of them crossed the Jordan River to follow Elijah for the anointing. They knew he was being taken away, but they didn't follow him. If any of them had followed Elijah, they would have had their own anointing and caught Elijah's anointing. That would have been a true double portion of the anointing. A prophet in those days was the highest echelon of society. They were people who heard from God and they were highly respected. In contrast, Elijah at this point was not even a prophet. He was a servant, the lowest of the low. But yet, he was the one that caught the double portion of the anointing. When he came back, the 50 sons of prophets bowed down to respect him because they recognized that his anointing was greater than theirs. If we want the anointing this morning, we must realize the prerequisite to getting the anointing is not that we hold an office in church. It's not that we serve for 10 years. The prerequisite, the only prerequisite is to have the faith to believe that there is an anointing just over there and to have the hunger to go the distance with God to get the anointing for myself. Nobody can get the anointing for you. You have to get the anointing for yourself. And if someone is hungry, God will give the anointing. It was only after they crossed the Jordan River that Elijah finally turned to Elisha and says, ask, what may I do for you? He doesn't ask it at Gilgal, Bethel, Jericho, Jordan. He only asked it after Jordan. When I was a young man, I used to think the best thing I can ask from God is wisdom because King Solomon asked for wisdom. But as I grew older and I read my Bible, I read that King Solomon actually didn't live his life good with God and he didn't end his life well. The best thing we can ask from God is not wisdom, but the anointing. When Elisha asked for the anointing, Elijah's reply was, what you have asked is a hard thing. He didn't say that any part of the journey, not even crossing the Jordan River was hard, but he says, oh, now you ask for the anointing, that is hard. What you have to do coming up is very hard. If you had asked for riches or wisdom, maybe that would have been easy, but you ask for the anointing, what is coming up is hard. That means the hardest part is yet to come. What was the hardest thing that Elisha had to do in order to catch the anointing? The hardest thing that Elisha had to do to catch the anointing was not an action. It was not to climb the highest mountain or swim the deeper sea or serve in ministry for 10 years. The hardest thing that Elisha had to do was to open his eyes and see spiritually what was happening. To open your spiritual eyes and see. And what did Elisha see? He saw the chariots of Israel and his horsemen. What do chariots and horsemen represent? 
in the Old Testament, chariots and horsemen represent the might or the power. When the Egyptians chased after the Israelites, it was written that the Egyptians, all pharaohs, horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites. It was a picture of the military might of Egypt. But it wasn't just a picture of military might of the human nations. Even God's might was portrayed as horses and chariots. We see this because later on, Elisha prayed for his own servant to see the might of God. He says, Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Chariots and horses are a picture of the might of God. When Elijah was taken to heaven, Elisha saw the spiritual might of God and the anointing fell. When Jesus was taken, what was the might of God that was revealed for the church? What was the anointing that fell from heaven onto the church? Jesus said it. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The anointing that we are chasing, the power of God in this day and age for the church is the Holy Spirit coming upon a man. Now, some people say, oh, then hold on, hold on. I already have the Holy Spirit. Bible says that when I believed in Jesus, I was given a deposit of the Holy Spirit in my life. And you are absolutely right. When we believe in Jesus, <clears throat> we be receive a deposit of the Holy Spirit guaranteeing our inheritance to come. If I buy a house, I put a deposit. The moment I put a deposit, nobody else can buy that house. But a deposit is only a small sum, and I cannot use the deposit. In the same way, when we believed in Jesus, He put a deposit of the Holy Spirit in us to claim us so that from that moment on, Satan no longer has any claim over us. But the portion of the Holy Spirit deposited is only a small portion, and we can't use it for power in the day-to-day -day matter. <clears throat> There is another dispensation of the Holy Spirit called the Holy Spirit coming upon a person. We see this in the Old Testament when David was anointed by the prophet Samuel to become King David. It says that the Spirit of God came powerfully upon David. When Samson was walking around and he came across a lion, the Spirit of God came upon him and he was strong and he tore the lion apart. When Gideon was a coward still hiding in the wine press and God came to meet him, he got out and he, the Spirit of God came upon him and he blew the horn and he became the general of Israel to lead victory against the Midianites. Even Jesus himself, he only began ministry when he was baptized by John the Baptist and at that moment, it said that the Holy Spirit came upon him as a dove. And in the same way, Jesus says to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He didn't say you will receive power when you receive a deposit of the Holy Spirit. He says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The anointing we are talking about today is the Holy Spirit coming upon a man like a mantle of authority that from that moment on, the forces of evil, when they see the Christian, they will know that he has the authority of God on his life. Some of you ask, what does the anointing look like? Will I become taller, more handsome when the anointing comes? Will my skin become smoother and I look 10 years younger when the anointing comes? Jesus described the anointing. In Luke 4.18, he says, The 
Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty for the captives and recover your sight for the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. There you go. The power to do ministry, the authority to do ministry, that's what the anointing looks like. In this day and age, we have the great advantage of history. We have seen and read of the life stories of men and women of God who have been used by God with the anointing upon their lives, and so we actually know what it looks like. In the case of John Wesley, D.L. Moody, Billy Graham, the anointing gave them great power to preach the word with conviction. When they preached the gospel, people were cut to their hearts and they were convicted that they were sinners and they needed this Jesus as their saviour. When the anointing came across upon Smith Wigglesworth, Catherine Kuhlman, John G. Lake, theirs was a ministry of supernatural signs and wonders. People were healed. People were miraculously healed and demons were cast out. Of course, they preach as well, but the hallmark of these people's ministry was the signs of supernatural signs and wonders. So what does the anointing look like over your life? I don't know what the anointing will look like upon you as an individual. You have to find out for yourself. But I do know it will be within the scope of Luke 4.18, and it will be something that will change your life forever. What we have to understand as well is what is the anointing given for? When John G. Lake received the anointing, his anointing to heal was so strong that he would look or touch a person and without the person saying anything, he would know exactly what the person was sick of and he would pray and the person would got healed. And so he did what you and I would probably have done if we had such a great anointing. He went to the hospital and he began praying for the sick and many were healed and there was uproar in the hospital for days. But then suddenly, the anointing disappeared. And he turned to God and he says, God, what happened? And God said, you are using it like a toy. And when he repented, the anointing came back. What is the anointing for? Because if we don't understand, even if we get it today, we can lose it tomorrow. The anointing is for one purpose only, and Jesus said it. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. What for? The rest of the verse says, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The point of the anointing is not to replace hospitals and schools and institutions. The point of the anointing is so that we can witness Jesus to people, so that people can encounter Jesus on a very personal level. If someone is sick, and I say to her, sister, Jesus loves you, she knows. She knows it here and she knows it here. But when someone prays for her and she's miraculously healed and filled with the life of Jesus, then she knows you don't have to tell she has experienced the love and the power and the life of Jesus. That's what the anointing is for. Come with me to the second last verse of this passage, and I want to show you something really precious. Before he used the mantle that he picked up of Elijah to perform the miracle, Elisha said these very unusual words. He says, where is the Lord God of Elijah? Anywhere else in the Bible or in the Old Testament when you read it, you will see where is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? 
Abraham was the first person that God established a relationship with. Isaac and Jacob were his sons and grandsons. They were the patriarchs. So people referred to God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If it was all about miracles, the servant of God used and most associated with signs and wonders in the Old Testament was Moses. So Elijah should have said, where is the Lord God of Moses? But why did he say, where is the Lord God of Elijah? If you can capture this, you will capture a beautiful spiritual truth. Now for a moment, let me take you to look at the life of Elijah, the old prophet who was taken to heaven here. There was a season in his life where Elijah was used mightily by God and he did signs and wonders. The greatest two was calling down fire from heaven to defeat 450 false prophets of Baal. Immediately after that, he opened the heavens to bring rain upon the nation that had been drought for years. These were the two greatest signs and wonders and they were witnessed by many Israelites. So many Israelites saw many miracles by Elijah, okay? Remember that. Now, right after his greatest display of power, Elijah actually becomes depressed. He becomes scared for his life. He becomes burnt out as a prophet of God. And he goes into this dark place. And then there is a supernatural encounter with God which restores him again. And right after that supernatural encounter with God, literally right after that, five verses down in the Bible, he meets Elisha. Okay? And then Elisha and Elijah walk together for eight years. And in the eight years that they are walking together, Elisha only witnesses one miracle by Elijah where he caught down fire on two groups of soldiers. So you've got many Israelites who had witnessed many miracles done by Elijah, but none of them desired the anointing of Elijah. You have Elisha here who walked for eight years, only witnessed one miracle, wasn't even as great as some of the others, and he longed, he, he had this yearning for the anointing of Elijah. What I'm trying to get across to you here is that the thing that Elisha yearned for when he yearned for the anointing was not the power. He saw something else in the life of Elijah that nobody else saw, and that was the thing that he desired for the anointing. Are you following me? Yes? Now, to capture what was it that Elisha saw, we go back to the incident that happened in Elijah's life just before he met Elisha. And at his lowest point, Elijah the prophet cried out to God and he says, I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. The Lord said, go out, stand on the mountain in front of me. I am about to pass by. And when the Lord approached, there was a powerful wind that tore the mountains apart and it broke up the rocks. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there came an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire came, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, there was only a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he put his coat over his head and he went out and stood at the entrance to the cave. A mighty wind, an earthquake, a fire, these are power. If we were standing outside the mountain, looking at what was happening, we would see the power. But a whisper, hello, Elijah, a whisper can only be a person. On that faithful day, Elijah didn't just see the power of God, he met the person of the Holy Spirit. 
He had an intimate relationship with God through the person of the Holy Spirit. And from that day on, he never burnt out again. To the world, Elijah the prophet was the most spiritually powerful man in his generation. But to Elisha, Elijah was the man who had the greatest intimacy with God through the Holy Spirit. And he saw that and he desired that. When Elisha was at the water and when he said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? What he was really crying out in his heart is, God, I know, I know that you had a relationship with Elijah. I know that you were there for Elijah. God, I have his mantle now. God, are you there for me? And God gave him the same miracle that he gave Elijah to reassure Elijah that just as I was with Elijah, so I am with you. The rest of the prophets, the sons of prophets, saw the power. But to Elisha, that moment was about a relationship, an acknowledgement, a relationship with God. To the world, the anointing will be a powerful force that brings signs and wonders. But to the believer, the anointing is the greatest intimacy with God through the person of the Holy Spirit. When you meet the person of the Holy Spirit, it completely changes your life. It completely changes our life. Before we meet Him, when we do our quiet time, we're looking at the watch, 15 minutes of Bible study, 15 minutes of prayer, I'm doing pretty good today. After we meet the person of the Holy Spirit, we run into His presence and we are undone. We cry when He walks in the room. We feel His love like never before. We worship Him like never before. We surrender to Him like never before. In that place, there is an intimacy where the time just flies by. Don't talk about a few minutes. For hours, I'm there with Him. And during the day, I'm looking for little pockets of time I can spend with Him. And then before I know it, I'm carrying Him all the time with me. All the time with me. And out of that secret place with Him, everything begins to happen around me. Opportunities, divine appointments all start to happen. But to the man, he's not looking at the external things. He's looking at his relationship with God. As the worship team comes back up, I'll share with you one more thing. On the day of Pentecost, there were 120 believers in the upper room. And 120 believers were praying for the Holy Spirit. They were praying for the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And the anointing came in tongues of fire. Do you know how many tongues of fire there were in that upper room that day? There was 120 tongues of fire, one for every believer. No one was left out. Here now, church, I will dispel one of the greatest lies that the devil has told the church. The anointing of the Holy Spirit coming upon a believer is not a lucky draw. It's not that some among us will be chosen to be great and the rest of us sit on the pews as spectators spot. No. The anointing of the Holy Spirit is meant for every believer and God said it Himself. He says, in these last days, I will pour my Spirit out upon all people. All people means all people. The devil is so scared. He is so scared of Spirit-filled believers. If I ask you today, what makes the church what would your answer be? 10 out of 10 people will probably tell me the building is not important. It is the people that make the church. But not quite so. 
between Jesus ascending and the day of Pentecost, there was 10 days. And for 10 days, you had 120 believers praying for the anointing, praying for the Holy Spirit, but they were not the church. They only became the church when the Holy Spirit came upon them. The hallmark of the church is not just believers. The hallmark of the church is spirit-filled believers. The devil is frightened of spirit-filled believers. He is frightened of believers who will take the Word of God and preach it with power. He is scared of believers who will lay hands and pray for the sake. He is scared of believers who will cast out demons in Jesus' name. He is scared of spirit-filled believers. That is the hallmark of the church. But where is the Holy Spirit in our midst these days? Where are the signs and wonders? For so long, church, we have known the Father for so long, we have known Jesus, the Son. But now, we must turn. And it's time for us to also know the Holy Spirit. In a few moments, I'm going to give an altar call to ask if you want the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, to come. And we're going to lay hands and we're going to pray for everyone who is hungry. But before that, I have one more business that I need to sort with you. Before the anointing, there was Gilgal. Before we receive the anointing this morning, or before we ask for the anointing this morning, I want to talk about our sins being washed away by the blood of Jesus. I'm not asking this morning if you're a believer. I'm not asking if you have heard that Jesus died for your sins and your sins are washed away. I'm not even asking if you have understood and accepted that Jesus has died for your sins. I'm asking this morning if you have experienced, really 100% experienced the fullness of the blood of Jesus washing away your sins. A man who only understands and has accepted that Jesus has died for his sins will say, Lord Jesus, I thank you that this day my sins are forgiven and when I die, I will see you in heaven. But the man who has experienced the fullness of the blood washing away his sins, he will jump up and down and he will say, Hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. My sins are washed away. Washed, they are not just forgotten, they are washed away. The pain and the, the, the shame and the guilt that I have done, the, the guilt I feel for the way that I treated my family and those who love me, the guilt and the shame, the disgrace and the shame that I feel for the sins that I did in secret, the disgraceful sins that nobody knows about, that I don't dare to tell anyone about, the weight of that sin is gone today. Today, not only has God forgiven my sins, I also can forgive my sins because my sins are washed away. That man would dare to go into the presence of God and say, Father, Father, I am your son. Today, I know I am clean and I'm your son. Father, please give me my portion of the anointing. The one who only understands the truth in this life, on this side of eternity, he hesitates to ask for the anointing because there is a part of him that says, you are not good enough. You haven't lived your life very piously. You haven't done your quiet time. You are still sinning. There is still sin in your life. There is a part of him that feels, I'm not worthy of the anointing. But you and I will never be worthy of the anointing. But the blood of Jesus is enough. Give me a moment of privacy. All eyes closed and all heads bowed. I want to ask you this morning, church. Have you experienced 
really experience the fullness of the blood of Jesus washing away our sins. If you are here this morning and there is still mistakes of the past that cling to you, that in your conscience, you still can't forgive yourself, you can't forget some of the things that you do. In the darkest of nights, it comes and it torments you once more. If that's you, I want to pray with you. Would you raise your hand? If you want to receive the fullness, the fullness of the blood of Jesus over your life so that you know today that before God, before Jesus, you are as clean as you will ever be. And today you are right and you are a son and daughter of Him. If that's you, would you raise your hand and I want to pray with you. We need to get this right before we ask for the anointing. Is there anybody else? I see your hand there. Thank you. I see your hand in the center, two sisters. I see your hand on the left, my brother. Anyone else? This is serious business. We have to sort this out with God. I see your hand here on my right, in the middle. I see your hand here, brother. Thank you. Anyone else? Anyone else? I see your hand there on my right. Thank you. Just 10 more seconds. The fullness of the blood of Jesus. Thank you. I see your hand at the back. Five. Four, three. Church, pray with me. Dear Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you that you paid the price for my sins. And your precious blood washed away all my sins. Jesus, this morning, wash my hands once and for all. Jesus, this morning, wash my heart once and for all. Jesus, this morning, wash my mind once and for all. Jesus, this morning, wash me completely once and for all. That in my conscience, I know, Jesus, that my sins are no more. My sins are no more before you. And my sins are no more before me. This day, Lord, I stand as your son. And I ask you, Abba, Father, give me my portion. Not by what I have done, but by the blood of Jesus. Lord, I believe and I claim it all. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. 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 Wonderful. Church, stand to your feet this morning. There's one more thing I just want to do this morning. I saw another preacher do it and it made so much sense. Church, would you just stretch your hand out in front of you, just like that, one hand. Stretch your hand in front of you. Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. As far as your hand is from you, that's how near the kingdom of God is. You and I, we can reach out and we can grab it for ourselves. The only key to grabbing it it's not to do more for God. It's a turning of the heart.
to repent is to turn our hearts to Him. If we have been living a life of sin, we turn our hearts back to the Lord. If we have been living a life where we don't recognize the Holy Spirit, we have ignored Him and we have not yearned for Him, then we turn our hearts back to Him and say, Holy Spirit, please come into my life. Holy Spirit, come into this church. Holy Spirit, fill me once again. To repent is to turn and then we believe. If you don't believe my words, believe in the words of Jesus when He said, when I go, I will send you a helper. I will send you a counselor. I will send you a comforter. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. There is a gift wrap anointing awaiting every believer. God promised it. In these last days, I'll pour out my Spirit upon all people. But you must believe, church, and you must grab it for yourself. I cannot grab it for you. You must have the faith to believe that it's there, and you must have the hunger to go the distance with God and say, God, give me my portion of the Holy Spirit to wrestle with God like Billy Graham did, and then all heaven will break loose upon us. Before I invite us down, let me just pray a prayer to close the service and dismiss the parents who need to pick up the kids and the, those who need to do ministry. And then after that, as we worship, if you want to receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit, come and we will pray and lay hands for everyone who is hungry. Lord, this morning we submit ourselves to you. Lord, give us a turning in our hearts. Give us a great turning in our hearts back to you to see the Holy Spirit, to desire the Holy Spirit and to bring the Holy Spirit back into the church and into our lives, Lord. As we go from here, God, keep your word. Keep your word. Kindle the fire in us, God. Give us a desire for you that everything else in this life becomes tasteless. Everything else, God. The only thing that satisfies is your presence, is you, Holy Spirit. Come and meet us as a person, Holy Spirit. Show us, show us, Lord. Lord, keep us and bless us until we next meet. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, as we worship, if you want to be filled with the anointing, if you want the fullness of the Holy Spirit, then come. And we would love to pray and lay hands for you.